Awkward questions. They're fun until they're asked of you. <laughs> um, one of the questions that I've been asked lately that I've tried to awkwardly, not, not awkwardly answer, but answer, even though it's awkward, um, people keep asking me, are you okay? I say, uh, yeah, <laughs> I feel great. Thanks for asking, how are you? <laughs> um, but what's, what's happening there is that they are asking if I'm okay because there's clearly something different about me than, than what they're, they're used to. Um, and part of the fun with that is answering that and, and being honest about that is, is a bit weird because, well, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll say it like this. Uh, part of the changes that have happened to me in the last year uh, are on purpose and, and part of them are not. So let me just quickly show you, while I figure out my iPad here, <laughs> let me show you uh, almost a year ago today, okay? So just take a quick look at the screen while I figure this out here. This is me in my old office. Actually, you can go ahead and move the slide over. I'm sorry, Drew, I know you can't quite hear. Okay, so that's me last year. Okay, now I'm doing this challenge that, that, uh, that uh, Kellen challenged us to do. It was about balancing on your foot. Um, and, and I don't know, can you see a difference at all? <laughs> um, no difference whatsoever. Um, one, of the, one of the things that people have noticed in the past year is like, oh, yeah, Pastor Rod looks different. He's about half of who man he used to be. <laughs> and so people like, are like, hey, are, are you okay, Pastor Rod? I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm totally fine. Uh, one person asked her, do you have cancer? And I said, no, 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 this is on purpose. I, I, I don't look like the way I used to because of a decision I made. Um, and here, let me just pause for one second here. Pretend like you hear none of this, okay? This is not part of my sermon. What device am I supposed to be on? I'm on Compass Tech, and I don't see which one I'm supposed to be on. Nothing's coming up. Which one? I have like 17 of them on me. Comp control Room Pro Presenter. Okay. When I press that, there it is. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'm back. So... Part of the transformation has resulted in something that we purchased yesterday, not yesterday, in the last couple weeks, and that's my new home gym. Home gym. I've got a bench and some weights, and that makes it a gym. <laughs> so one of the cool things that, uh, that, that's happened, though, is that the motivation behind this change uh, is, is really uh, part and parcel of what's taken place over the last year. And one of the cool things is that I get to work out with my kids now. So I got my son Adam in there, he's nine, and my son Jacob, and these guys are getting yoked, and now I'm trying to show them how to do a proper bench press and some squats with some, with some weights and things. It's really fun. It's, it's a great thing. But I stopped them before we started. I said, guys, why do we do this? Why is this important? Why are we even attempting to make ourselves stronger? And I was proud of my oldest son, who might be watching, uh, but he said, well, to glorify God. And I said, that's exactly right, son. So I said, the obvious question, well, how do you glorify God by working out? How do you glorify God by being healthy? What does that have to do with anything? And he kind of hemmed and hawed. He's like, well, I'm not quite sure. I, I, you know, I, I think because you take care of your body, I guess. And I'm like, okay, good, good, good. Here's the thing. And, and I told him, look, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Taking care of yourself and, and loving God uh, means that you're trying to take physically care of yourself so that you can be useful to God. You can be more useful to the people around you. You can please God by the way that you take care of your body. And so I'm just trying to help them connect the dots, right? And, and the problem is uh, most people, when they think about working out or anything else, the, the, the motivation is, of course, vanity, right? I want to look cute. I want to be beautiful. I want to be ripped. I want to be an Instagram influencer. But here's the thing. Anything short of pleasing God with your life is a subpar goal for every and any Christian. Any goal for your life that is not at the heart of pleasing God is the wrong way. It is a subpar goal for the Christian life. In fact, I would dare say that until you understand and believe that, all you're going to do is look around at other Christians and say, oh, okay, I, he, you know, she's reading her Bible three times a week. I'm reading my Bible four times. Uh, therefore, that's enough. I feel good about that. He worships God by doing it this way. And, and as long as I'm not kind of at the bottom of the pile, I'm somewhere in the middle, I'm okay with where my Christian life is. But see, what that betrays is a mindset that is saying, all I'm doing is looking at what other people are doing. And as long as I'm not as bad as other people, I'm okay in my Christian life. 
And to that, there's a theological word called phooey. <laughs> no, don't think that way. Don't think that way. See, here's the thing. When, when you do that, when you start looking at other people to gauge your Christianity and say, as long as I'm not as bad as him or not as uh, bad as her, I'm doing okay. You're going to end up having something called flabby Christianity. It's unex- unexciting, unmotivating. It has little utility. It's ineffective. But when the goal of your Christian life is to please God, everything else falls simply into place. Because then, if your friends are, you know, they're, they're the kind of friends that they, they're trying to read the Bible and they read the Bible three times a week, it's not like, oh, I want to do the same thing. No, I want to exceed that because I want to please God with my life. Now being on varsity is not a matter of personal glory and, and, and self-gratification. Now it's, how do I please God with my life? And if God gives me a platform where I'm an, ex, I'm an excellent athlete and people want to sign me to this college or that college or this team or that team, fantastic. We need more Tim Tebow's in our life. We need more people who are willing to be platformed for the right reasons. But any other goal short of that, where it's my life and my desires and my glory, well, then again, subpar goal. Again, when it's pleasing God, when your desire in life is to please God, everything else falls into place. But anything short of that is going to hinder and even hurt you. A couple weeks ago, we went to a camp, Camp Pondo. And at that camp, we talked about God's holiness. God's holiness. We talked about his holiness, but we didn't talk a whole lot about our holiness. Today, we're going to enter into the conversation about how a desire to please God is at the heart of a Christian's life, and that not only should we strive to please God, but we should strive to please God more and more and more and more, and just keep saying that in your head over and over again. That's where we're going. The goal of your Christian life should be to please God and to do it more, to strive to be more than what you are now course, there are dangers here. And this is what we're going to get in today. Paul's going to give us uh, some motivation to go that direction. He's going to help us to see that uh, when we, we seek to make this our effort and our ambition, man, there's endless glory, endless pleasure that we can give God. But before we get there, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to actually look at these first, uh, I don't know, 12 verses in 1 Thessalonians 4. But let me just quickly recap because we haven't been in here for a couple weeks. In chapter 1, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. He says, I'm excited about you because you responded to the gospel. And you didn't, re- you didn't respond, uh, but uh, our, your response to the gospel was in power and full conviction. The Holy Spirit was making his, his, uh, his presence known in you because they responded to bad situations with joy. Paul was a proud papa. In chapter 2, he said how he has been bold to declare to them the gospel in the midst of much conflict. He's saying, look, you saw me suffer. You're going to suffer too. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have a struggling, uh, a struggling Christianity like the rest of us. In chapter 3, he sends Timothy to them, and Timothy brings back a good report to Paul and says, Paul, you're going to be stoked because the church is growing. They're not slowing down. They've responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're growing rapidly. They're maturing in their faith. And now Paul's responding to that. He just, he just got the download from Timothy. And in chapter 4, Paul's responding to that, saying, guys, I'm so excited about what I've heard. Now let me give you some instructions. Chapter 4 is where we're going now. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it starts like this. Finally, and he's not wrapping up, by the way, because he's got another couple chapters here. Uh, he says, finally, then, brothers. And by the way, when, whenever Paul uses brothers, it's meant to be to the whole congregation. It's not just to the guys. It's everybody. Uh, but that's the common vernacular. It's like saying, what's up, guys? And if I'm talking to the whole crew, no one says, oh, there's girls here, too. Same concept here. Finally, then, brothers, we, two things, ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing. In other words, you heard from us, we taught you, we asked and urged you to do this. And, he says, and on top of that, look, you're already walking in that direction. Um, again, proud papa, you're already doing that. But I want you to do that more and more. In other words, don't coast. You're on the right track, but keep pushing, keep running, and excel. Exceed where you've been already. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. When, we, when Paul came to them, he gave them a layout of the Christian life, and he says, look, you heard me, you responded to me, you're responding rightly, but don't think in any way that you're done. 
In fact, keep pushing, Thessalonian church. Don't stop going. Keep moving forward. Here's the downside for us, especially in a church like ours where you guys have been taught since you were just, you know, little tights here, you've been taught everything about the Christian life. And I, I don't mean everything, hyperbole, obviously, but you've been taught so much, so much about the gospel, so much about Jesus, so much about being a faithful Christian that I think when he's talking to the Thessalonians, it's easy for you to say, you know what, maybe I can sometimes feel that way, where I'm doing what God says in some way, and maybe I feel like uh, I'm in true north right now, and I, you know, I'm going on senior, or maybe I'm a junior. I feel like I've heard this. I know this already. I've arrived. Paul would challenge you tonight, essentially, to put it like this, point number one, to never think you have arrived. Never think you have arrived. My family and I, a couple days ago, went on a road trip. We went to the Grand Canyon and back in less than 48 hours, 850 miles. And uh, one of the cool things is that we got to visit all these weird places off of Route 66, and then we went to the Grand Canyon, and there was this, uh, there was this see-through floor that you walk on. It's horseshoe-shaped, and you get to walk over the canyon on a see-through glass floor. It was terrifying. thought I was going to die. But here's the thing. When we got to the Grand Canyon, our destination, let, let, me, let me just make this easy observation. When we drove to the Grand Canyon and we got there, when we reached our destination, we stopped driving. We stopped making progress after we arrived. Christians, if they get into the mindset of, I have arrived, you stop making progress because you think, I've got this figured out. I know what my life is about. I know what Christianity is about. And you stop pushing. You stop giving yourself the challenging scriptures because it's like, man, I, I got it. I figured it out. I was having a conversation just today and yesterday about the difference between God's general atonement and specific atonement. This is something that probably most of you have never even given a second thought to. Here's essentially how this works out. General atonement, or as it's often referred to as unlimited atonement, is when Jesus died on the cross, when he died, his death paid for anyone and everyone who would ever repent. But that would include even Hitler's sins. If Hitler repented and trusted Jesus Christ, Jesus' death on the cross would satisfy that. But of course, as we know it, Hitler didn't repent, right? However, there's another camp that says, no, atonement is specific. It is limited atonement. And Jesus' death on the cross only paid for those who would repent and believe, only the elect. Now, if you're tracking with me on the theological terms here, you probably have a knee-jerk reaction of which is which. But both fall under the umbrella of orthodox teaching. Which do you believe and why? You see, if you've arrived, you might not have even thought of that yet because you already have, you've gained, I've got my, salva I got my salvation in this hand, I've got my sanctification in another, I get it, I'm good, I don't have to think about that anymore. But if you're a Christian who's thinking and feeling the weight of your conviction, you realize there's so much more room for you to grow. So young person, never think you have arrived. Give yourself space to grow. And when you hear messages or when you're challenged with things that you think you already have a you know, lock, stock, and barrel on, you need to give yourself space to say, you know, there's, there's room for me to, to continue growing and understanding things that I presently think I have a full understanding of. We should strive to please God more and more. Striving to please God more and more. Uh, never think you have arrived. Uh, let me just break this down really quickly here. What we need to do is take a small, uh, a small sidestep here to understand the difference between sanctification, salvation, and justification, okay? Let me just talk about that really quick first part here, salvation precedes sanctification, okay? You need to understand this. You cannot be sanctified. You cannot grow in Christ if you are not first in Christ to begin with, which is why I think it's important uh, that he says here in, in, in verse one, Paul says, finally, then, my brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. This is in the reality, in the context, in the space and place of Jesus Christ being their savior. If Jesus is not your savior, you cannot be sanctified. You cannot please God in any stretch of the term. Uh, for those of you who are not Christians, Scripture says that you are like one who is unclean and all of your righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. For those who are not Christians, you cannot please God. In fact, Paul says it this way. He says, For the mind is set on the flesh and it's hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
So in other words, you must be saved before you can be sanctified. You must be saved before you can be sanctified. So if you're not a Christian, hear me. I don't want you to do more of what God tells you to do first. First, repent and believe the gospel. When that happens and you trust Christ for your salvation, then you can be sanctified. Okay? So don't, don't, don't misunderstand me, okay? If you're not a Christian, yeah, God wants you to be obedient, but the most important act of obedience is responding to the gospel. Get saved, then let the act of sanctification begin in you. Salvation precedes sanctification. Then, when you're saved, it unlocks sanctification. Think about being in a car. You guys are getting your driver's licenses, or you should be anyway. Think about going in the car. You sit in the car. Uh, if you put the key in the ignition you turn it once, it basically unlocks everything in the car. You could turn on the AC. You, can, you see the dashboard lights light up. I mean, just think that. You could, you could uh, put the foot on the brake and, and shift. You could do a lot of things in the car. You could turn the steering wheel. You could turn things on and off. You have almost unlimited access to the car. But until the key turns the ignition and starts the vehicle, you're only playing pretend, right? You're only acting like you're driving and not actually driving. And so it is with the Christian faith. Until the key of salvation is inserted into the car, you're only working out, uh, not your salvation, but you're working out acts that don't contribute anything to your salvation before God. So first and foremost, be sure that you are living not as, a, as someone who's feeling the weight of the law, but rather someone who is saved, and then is able to act out salvation as a result of that. Salvation precedes sanctification. Salvation unlocks sanctification, which now means as a, uh, as a believer, here's the beauty. As a believer, your good works now are pleasing to God. You can please God with your good works. When you do something kind to your sister, when you obey your parents, when you uh, give up your seat for someone else in the room because you care about them, those good works are pleasing to God, which is why he says, you've received from us how you ought to walk, right? How you ought to live. Paul is okay with saying, look, once you're in Christ, now go and live for Christ. Don't, do, don't be lazy. In fact, he, will, he would also say in Romans 6, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? In other words, you're placed into Christ. This is not the water baptism. This is saying you've been uh, connected to Christ intimately. You've been placed into his life. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, the whole reason that you've been saved is to do good works, to live righteously, to live holy. So now that you've been saved, it unlocks sanctification. It means you can now please God by your works. Here's where most people go wrong, though, okay? And this is where I have a great concern for all of you. This next part is super, super, super important. It may not be the most eloquent way I could say this, but you need to hear this next part, okay? Please, if you're not paying attention, give me your attention. I need you to hear this. If you are a Christian, this next part is so important for you to hear. And if you don't hear it, you're going to do yourself a disservice. Listen close. Give me 30 seconds if you hear nothing else, okay? Your love for God is what's ultimately going to motivate your service to God, okay? Your love for God, your sanctification is motivated by love. Your service to God is motivated by love for God. Service motivated by love. Your sanctification, your pursuit of who God is, is motivated by love. Here's where I'm getting that. I already, I already told you, but, but just take a look with me. I'm going to slow down for just a second. You've received it from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, okay? To, to please someone is essentially say, I, I want to make you happy. I want, to, I want to serve you, okay? Have your parents ever, when you're opening up a present, they pull out the camera and they're like, they're watching you with bated breath and they're like, they're taking a picture of you or they're recording you opening it. Has anyone's mom or dad done that before? Okay, why do they do that? Think about that. Why do they do that? Let me, let me give you a bit of insight, because I'm a dad too. I haven't done that all the time. I try to be in the moment, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I just want to capture the moment. Why? Because a parent who loves their kid so much wants to savor and relive that moment of delight and happiness on your face. 
when you open up that box and it's like, oh, there's a car key in there. And it's like, oh, they, they want to see that and enjoy that and savor that. It's like, oh, that, that, that tastes so good because they love doing good to you. When you are pleased by what they do, they get delight from that. Why? Because they love you. In a similar sense, to put the shoe on the other foot now, when you're serving God, this is not, I have to do this, it's my duty, I must do it. That's part of it sometimes. But if that's the majority of your interaction with God, your, your relationship with God is just, it's awful. And you're living under the law again. Christians who understand the gospel understand that my love for God is what motivates my service to God. Anything less than that is something binding, restricting, and really it's putting yourself under the law. A parent doesn't have to be scolded by a pastor to say, love your kids, make sure that you take care of them. I mean, I guess, yeah, there's some out there. But for the most part, your parents love you because they love you. You're their kid. Again, turning that around, Christians who have been changed by the gospel, the difference is between a balloon filled up with helium and a balloon filled up by your own oxygen, right? You're, if you do that to a balloon, and you let the balloon go, what happens? It falls down. If you want to keep the balloon up, you got to smack it, right? Sometimes it feels like your pastor's doing that, right? You got to smack you back in the air. Come on, Christian, do it. Do it. Stay up in the air. But a Christian who loves God, who understands what Jesus did for them on the cross and has been regenerated, made alive in Christ, the difference is the person who's been filled up with someone's breath versus the person who's been filled up with helium. The Holy Spirit's helium makes you floater, uh, float into the air. No one has to smack you in position and be like, get to it. Sometimes we need that. I'll, I'll grant that. Sometimes we need that. But by and large, love is what motivates sanctification. Not, not works, not guilt, not shame. You hearing me on this? I care about you. Please hear this. This will radically change your Christian life if you get this. There is duty, yes. There's times when, I, again, I, I told you during revival, there's times when I don't want to open my Bible, and I do it anyway because my love for God makes me do things that sometimes I don't feel like doing that. In the same way that when you love your parents, you take out the trash, not because you always love taking out the trash, because you love and respect your parents. That's the difference between someone who's walking with God and is like, oh, I hate this, this is drudgery, versus the person who's like, I want to walk with God. It's not always pleasant, but I love following the Lord. That's what Paul says. Uh, you, you, you ought to walk to please God. To please God. Huge. Huge. And because you love God, uh, when that happens, that love is not going to be satisfied with just getting by. Uh, love is, by its very nature, expansive. Love is something that can't help but grow. And granted, yes, it takes work and it takes exercise and it takes a deliberate effort, but because there's love, that will never be satisfied by the status quo, by the way that everyone else does it. And Paul says to you, says to you here, he says, just as you're doing, you're doing the work, you're pleasing God, you're walking the right way, but I want you to do that more and more and more and more. The word has an expansive quality to that. It's not satisfied by looking at other people saying, yeah, that's how you do it but I want to press on toward the goal. I want, to, I want to strive forward. I want to strain forward to what lies ahead. I'm quoting loosely Paul in Philippians 3. You see the difference between loving God and letting that lead your sanctification versus I have to do this because God is making me do it. I have a duty, an obligation to fulfill. Love, grace, law works. When you love God, that's how you're going to know. That's how you're going to know. Have you been regenerated? Have you been born again? Part of it is that you're going to love God. doesn't mean you're going to do it perfect, but you're going to love him. You're not going to be satisfied with the way that things have been. You want to do things different. Last observation in this text here. It comes from verse 2, just two words. He says, for you know. You know. I went there and I gave you everything I had to say. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We told you what to do with your life, and you know these things. So Paul is talking to them, and he's saying, look, I get it, guys. You've heard me say this before. However, I'm going to say it again anyway. You know what instructions I gave you. Go fulfill those. Sanctifying love needs reminders. It's okay. Sometimes we just need to be reminded and reinforced about the things that we already know. I'm listening to this book, uh, 
on how we hear. Apparently, uh, as you get older, uh, and, and this is true for my life, maybe it'll be true for years, um, as you begin to age and move away from your, your family's oversight, governance, there's a thing that happens as you get older where you begin to hear your parents' voices in your head. Not like you're weird or anything. <laughs> All of us are a little weird. Some of us more than others. But there's a way in which when you hear things, like you're making a decision, you'll hear your mom's phrase. Like, you know, when mom, when the, the thing that mom always says. Um, your mom always says that certain thing. It's like, oh, I hear my mom's voice in my head. Or your dad is always like, uh, your dad is a hard worker, and so he has his phrases that he uses with you. I don't know, whatever it is. Your mom's and dad's phrases, they end up in your head, lodged in there, and as you're making important decisions about who you're going to marry or the job you're going to take, you hear their voices in your head. Apparently, that's a good thing because that helps you uh, kind of synthesize all of their teaching in your life and to use it to help you make better decisions. At least that's the idea. And really, that's the goal of walking in Christ, that his word has such a place in your life that it has soaked your inner person so that you don't have to go necessarily say, what's the chapter and verse, although that would be good, but that his word so saturates your whole person that you can make decisions without really having to, to calculate every part of it. Having that intuitive, reminding quality of the scriptures fill your life to help you make wise decisions. Don't think you've arrived. That's really what I'm getting at. Don't think that you've arrived. Many of you, I'm looking at your faces. I know, I feel like I could say, speaking on your behalf, been there, done that, bought the Christian t-shirt, went to the Christian camp, graduated Awana 17 times. Like, I know it all, Pastor Ron. Don't think you've arrived. In fact, the older I get, the more I'm grateful that I'm wise enough to know that I'm not wise enough. I know that I'm not there. You need to know that you're not there, and you need to let that drive you toward Christ to love him, to trust him, to follow him more faithfully in an expansive way. You're not there yet. These next two are going to go faster. They're super important. Paul gives two areas of practical holiness that you need to focus on. Let's look at the first one. This one's a zesty one. Here it goes. For this is the will of God, person, your sanctification. What is God's will for your life? Sanctification. God's will for your life is for you to be holy. And he says, here's how. That you abstain, withhold yourself from, don't give in to even a little bit, from sexual immorality. In Thessalonica, there was sexual promiscuity, just like there is in our day and age, if not a little worse. We're getting there. We're, we're trying to, we're trying to hold, hold the course with, uh, with Thessalonica. But he was telling them, look, don't, don't engage with the cultic, uh, the cultic priests, don't, have, don't engage with the cult prostitutes. Just stay away from it. Not even a little bit. Stay away. Abstain from sexual morality. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. He says don't, uh, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. The Lord's the one who's watching you, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. Paul says, look, this is a serious warning here. I need you to hear me on this. Now, if you sin against your brother or sister in this area of sexual immorality, look, God's watching. God is the one who's going to take care of any issues of sin in that arena. For God has not called us for impurity. God didn't save you just so you can get dirty again. No, he wants you to be holy. Therefore, whoever disregards this, these commands, disregards not Paul, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. The second arena of practical holiness. The first one is, look, keep growing, keep expanding. The second area is having a holy sexuality. This is not about homo versus hetero, okay? This is not a matter of sexual inclination per se. This is a matter of saying, I want my life to display a holy sexuality. And for most people, I think there's a sense of like, okay, I get that's the call, but it's prudish, it's, uh, it's archaic, it's traditional, it's boring, it's non-exciting. I think differently about that. Number two, rightly define holy sexuality. Let's have a good grasp of how Scripture talks about this area and why it is infinitely better to obey God in this rather than to obey the world's sexual ethic. I brought this up to you guys, I think, the last time, but it so greatly encapsulates what I'm trying to bring up that it was worth bringing up twice. Okay, article in USA Today. Oral Roberts University isn't the feel-good March Madness story we need. And I quoted to you this. I showed you that uh, this author whoever they are, um, writes brilliantly. 
And there's a sentence that I highlighted to you, you know, the one that says, um, that second sentence, what is not up for debate is their anti-LGBTQ plus stance, which is nothing short of discriminatory and should expressly be, be condemned by the NCAA. Well, okay, that's the one that we focused on the last time. Let's focus on that first sentence, though. Take a look at this. That Oral Roberts wants to keep its students tied to toxic notions of fundamentalism that fetishize chastity, abstinence, and absurd hemlines <clears throat> is a larger cultural issue that can be debated. Okay, so do you see all those words that she used to describe Christians, uh, the Christian focus on this, uh, the Christian sexual ethic? Uh, fundamentalist, it's toxic, by the way. Toxic, it's fundamentalist. It's, it fetishizes chastity, not having sex before marriage. Um, abstinence, chastity, I guess, purity, the purity code, rather. Abstinence, not having sex before marriage. And absurd hemlines, long dresses, is a larger cultural issue that can be debated. Now, all those things that she uses to describe the Christian sexual ethic is, I guess, partly true, but is it a fair description of the whole I don't agree. I don't agree. Let me help draw a few applications for you here. First of all, look at this. This is the will of God, your sanctification, abstaining from sexual immorality. Pop quiz. Will of God a good thing or a bad thing? Pop quiz number two. Will of God benefits or a detriment? It's benefits. It's a benefit. Look, if we're going to rightly define holy sexuality, you have to know that the boundaries God creates are for your good they're for your good. Look, I have a baby in the house. I mean, she's not a baby. She's like a, a year and, I don't know. She's a year and something now. Anyway, one of the first things we had to buy when she started walking is the baby fence. Okay, the baby. Anyone know what a baby fence is? You put it there so the baby doesn't kill themselves. But we put it up too late. <laughs> because a few times, she, she didn't die. <laughs> we would tell her, Look, Tabitha, don't go up the stairs. And of course, you say no to somebody. That's the very thing that makes it like, well, I'm going to do it anyway, right? So she just strolled up the stairs, and at least twice, maybe three times, she tumbled down the stairs. She was devastated. Oh, I'm going to die. And we're like, I told you. <laughs> I told you not to do that. And so we put the fence up, put the fence up so that she doesn't go up the stairs and then kill herself. In a very similar sense, people put fences around gardens. The fences keep predators out and keep the things inside protected. There's a, there's two, like a two-way process for that. There's a multifaceted approach. Keeps the bad stuff out, keeps the good stuff in. That's what's happening here. God is giving you boundaries and fences that are meant to keep predators out and keep the good stuff in. God's not hiding things from you. He's not trying to undermine your joy or your success or even your desire to express your sexuality. In fact, for the most part, for most of your sexual desires, there are legitimate godly outlets for that. It's called marriage. Husband and wife get together. Y'all have fun. There's a whole book in the Bible about that. Go for it. You know, go do that thing. Go do that. But Outside of the marriage covenant, you start acting outside the fences, outside the boundaries that God has created for you. It's the same thing as my little baby girl playing on the stairs. You play on the stairs, you're going to get hurt. You play with fire, you're going to get burned. You go outside the fence, now you're in no man's land. And here's what ends up happening. You go outside the boundaries God creates, you're going to think it's a great time because sin is fun. But ultimately, eventually, you get burned, you get hurt. You give stuff away that you can never get back. You end up hurting yourself and sinning against yourself in ways that are just long-lasting. And God forgives sexual sin? Absolutely. God is gracious. You can never outsin God's grace. But God gives you those rules and those boundaries for your good, for your holiness, for your righteousness. God's boundaries protect and lead to flourishing. That's why Psalm 1611, I love this verse. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Being a Christian, and specifically submitting your, Christian, your, your sexuality to God, is for your good, for your long-lasting pleasure, your delight. And trusting him to lead you in that is ultimately going to benefit you. 
Okay, that's my first point on that, okay? First observation, it's for your good. Now, the second one is going to be a bit awkward, okay? I'm just going to tell you in advance. It's a bit awkward, but roll with me here. Holy sexuality properly functions, okay? It operates in its right place vertically and horizontally, okay? There's a God element and there's a man element, and they both work together. Let me show you what I mean, okay? First, uh, the man part, horizontal, okay? The man element. I'm getting it from, this, uh, from verses 4 through 6a. Here's what it says. The way that you interact with one another, each one of you should know how to control his own body, okay? So the first thing, uh, when you think about sexual morality, sexual excellence, it's controlling your body. And as, you, uh, in, as the hormones flood your body, that, that becomes harder and harder. And in fact, I've heard some of you even say that I don't think it's possible to be self-controlled in this area. I have to give myself over to this sin. And that's not what the text is saying here. Self-control is, first of all, the, the, the first thing that God calls us to. But that's not all. He says, uh, it's not just controlling your own body, but uh, the manner that you do it, the, the way, the attitude that you have is holiness and honor. So self-control in and of itself is good, but that's not the goal for the Christian, okay? Self-control, good, but not the primary goal. The goal is holiness and honor. So it is inwardly motivated that results in an outward action. Holiness and honor results in controlling my own body. Why? Because look at verse five. He says, don't do it like, like the Gentiles, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God. Those who, who don't care about God, don't love God, they're going to do whatever they want to do. They're going to uh, follow their passions wherever they lead. But you, young person, because holiness and honor, love for God is birthed in your heart, that results in an overflow of, I want to control my body so I can honor God. Method, control my body. Manner, holiness and honor. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. That you don't treat them as, as if they are someone to be taken advantage of. In fact, here's, here's the biggest difference between a Christian sexual ethic and the world sexual ethic. Christian sexual ethic has at the heart of it, the core, selflessness and others focused. Okay, Or other, singular. When you become a husband or a wife, you should in your mind at least forecast my job in the marriage, when I marry this person, is to be other-focused, even in the marriage bed, okay? This is not full awkward yet. It's still coming. Full awkward is coming. Not in the passion of lust, self-control, holiness and honor. I don't transgress and wrong my brother in this matter. Here, here's what this obviously discounts and disqualifies. Porn, masturbation, and all the stuff that goes with that. Premarital sex of any sort, because obviously holiness and honor is not at the, the root of that. It's not self-controlled. It's the passion of lust. You're wronging your brother and perhaps your sister, depending on how you look at this, by engaging in those things. So the obvious application here, young person, is that when you seek to excel more and more in the holiness of God, one of the areas that you need to keep a firm eye on is how I'm treating mankind around me. Brothers and sisters who are presently in the Lord, and perhaps those who will be in the Lord. Pornography, masturbation, which is self-sex, undermines the very objective God has for your sexuality. So again, remember those fences? The fence is God's prescribed limits of how you're to engage in sexuality. And those prescribed limits are holiness, honor, with self-control. Self-sex undermines that. Pornography undermines that. Premarital sex undermines that. Everything that it's popular to do right now undermines all of God's intentions for your human sexuality. I mean, let's not even bring up the fact that for most of the people on the screen that you would access and watch for free are being trafficked. How about that? One of the biggest providers of pornography got, got shouted down in the New York Times because they were hosting content that they were unable to verify as having a legitimate source. In other words, people who were trafficking these young men and young women were uploading them to the sites, and you were none the wiser. But you supported them if you engage in that website. Rightly defined holy sexuality means it has proper boundaries for your good, properly functions vertically and horizontally. So we're talking about horizontal, the uh, human connections here. But there's a vertical, a vertical 
connection, a vertical function that we need to talk about. Obviously, vertical is the God factor. The God factor is what I'm referring to now. This is verses 6b through 8. Take a look at it with me here. This is the scary stuff. Because, be holy in this area because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. What things? Sexual morality. Mistreating your brother or sister in that arena. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is strong language from Paul. Solemnly, seriously warned you. Verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity. He didn't call you so you can live in sin. He called you for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who deposited his Holy Spirit within you to live holy and righteous. Okay, here's where the awkward is, okay? The full awkward. Holy sexuality integrates this relationship, man, man, or man and woman, woman and man, husband and wife, and God. So a husband and wife who are engaging in holy sexuality are doing so in the face of God. God is not absent when humans engage in this, especially when married couples. God is pleased with this. God enjoys when husband and wife do this because it glorifies him and it's in its proper boundaries. God sees the acts of sexual, sexual immorality that are committed because he sees all acts, every single thing that you do. And not only the acts that you do out here, but the acts that you do in here. God sees that just as well as he sees anything else in your life. And so, Holy sexuality, then, is a fear of displeasing him, a fear of receiving God's discipline and wrath because of the way that you're engaging in sexuality or sexual morality. Called the holiness. You're empowered by his spirit. Uh, I heard one young man tell me, he says, uh, I, I, I don't know any Christian, okay? I'm a loosely paraphrase. I don't know any Christian that, man in particular, that has successfully been sexually pure for any length of time. And I would say to that, you know what? You're right. There's a lot of people that struggle with this. But that does not give, A, you license, or B, anyone else license to say, well, because he failed, and he failed, and he failed, and she failed, and she failed, that means I can fail too. And it's not a big deal because everyone's failing. That goes back to my first point. Never think you've arrived and understand God is calling you to holiness. I can't compare myself to him and her and him and her because my goal is not to please them, it's to please God. But even more importantly, the text tells me God has given us, he's given you his Holy Spirit, which means you can conquer this sin. You can, by God's grace, follow him, serve him, and love him in purity. Young person, never throw in the towel. Don't believe the lie because this person failed and that person failed that suddenly no one can succeed in this. That's ultimately not true. I should have said that. That's not true. There are men who are walking in victory. There are women who are walking in victory. No sin in your life is greater than God's grace or his spirit. You hear me on that? No sin in your life is greater than God's grace and his spirit. Holy sexuality. Firm boundaries for your good when it's operating correctly, it's operating in the face of God for the good of man or woman in marriage. This last one. Paul finishes the second practical application of holiness in verses 9 through 12. Let's read it, let's read it here. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. This is amazing. Paul's commending them. He says, look, you guys get it. You understand what love is. You're doing it. I love this. Great job. Verse 10, for that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. This whole region is benefiting because you guys are on it. You're loving them. But take a look at the second half of verse 10. He says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this, and here we go again, more and more. Don't stop. You haven't reached the end yet. Keep going. Verse 11, and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own business and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul again challenges their love and says, guys, you're doing a good job. Keep going. You're doing great. Don't stop. You're on the 25th mile of your marathon. Keep running. You're not finished yet. Keep pursuing the goal. He says, the love that you have for people, keep going. You got more in the tank. You're not done yet. Look, one of the coolest things about owning an iPhone is that I know every year I'm going to get an upgrade, right? I'm going to get iOS 15 this year. I'm thinking, what are they going to add to it at this point? 
Like, can they put a microwave on this thing so I can, on the go, like, you know, get my, heat, my food heated up? Like, I don't know what else they can add because every year they've, they've improved these devices to the point where it's like, oh, I don't, cool, that's nice. New emoji, <laughs> great. That's iOS 15, new emoji. Uh, there was a time when, like, they didn't allow multitasking. You would swipe up on an app and go back into it and it'd have to start all over again. That was frustrating. That was like, that was, a, that was the dark ages, guys. You don't know how good you have it. It was the dark ages. And now there's multitasking, and there was a day where you had to plug your phone into a computer to get music and podcasts on it, like, like Neanderthals we had to live. Like, we were, we were, we were struggling. Now, it's just like it, from the air, just like the air brings it in, and it's, just, it's all here. It's all here. iOS 15. Like, everyone loves an upgrade, right? Everybody loves an upgrade because the goal is ultimately to improve uh, iterations of improvement. Iterations of improvement. I like that. Iterations of improvement. You and I ought to have that same mentality. Iterations of improvement. So don't look forward to iOS 15. In fact, look forward to your upgrade. Upgrade your love for others. Find ways to upgrade and improve by iterations of improvement your love for other people. If I ask you to raise your hand, like who's got, who who loves people really well? Probably no one's going to raise their hand. But everyone, if I said, who can grow in their love for others? I mean, all of us, we know intuitively, yeah, I've got room. I've got room to grow. The whole concept of love is all over the pages of the New Testament. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, praise God, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We've seen love acted out upon the cross. Let us now do the same. John 13, 35, Jesus said this. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Teams have colors and mascots, right? Uh, The Christian church doesn't have a mascot. We don't have colors that we wear. But people are going to know, oh, that's Team Jesus right there. How? By the way that we love each other. That's what Jesus says. You're succeeding in the Christian life. If people could say, you know what? I can tell they're a Christian by the way that they love one another. That's our calling card. That's our team color. And again, he says, but don't stay there. Improve that love. Find ways to excel in that more and more. And then he says something interesting. Look at verse 11. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Two quick ways you can improve your love. Upgrade your love, rather. First one, eliminate drama. Mind your own affairs. Okay, mind your own business in some way. Uh, it's essentially saying not being inordinately involved in other people's business. Another word you might use is meddling. Getting your hands dirty, but for the wrong reasons. In fact, what this leads to is, is gossip, spilling the tea. This is the kind of thing where it's like, oh yeah, I'm just spilling some tea here. Let me just share something. No, don't do that. That's not what Christians do. Because you're meddling, you're creating drama, you're, you're putting yourself in a situation where you're allowing uh, people to, to have bad opinions about the people around you. You're creating drama, so your job is to eliminate it. One of the coolest things I saw recently was two friends who were estranged standing next to each other, side by side, worshiping the Lord. Amazing. I was proud. As a pastor, I look at that and say, that's beautiful. That's the gospel on display there. We were estranged. We had issues. We swallowed our pride. We got back together, and now we're worshiping the Lord together. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's that's what love does. It eliminates and squashes the bugs of drama. It does not let them linger around as if it doesn't matter. Second, Paul says, and work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on nobody. In other words, work. Okay, so here's how I put it. Eliminate drama, esteeming work, esteeming work. This one I love because Paul connects something that you might not ever connect. Okay, here's what he does. He says, essentially, loving others well requires work. Not profound, not profound. I know, but follow me, follow me here. Excellent work is an act of worship toward God, and love toward people. Let me give you an example. In 1973, uh, this building called the Skyline Plaza in Virginia was erected. It's it's an apartment complex. Okay, 1973, this place was built. But what I failed to mention is that the building actually collapsed. Killing, uh, they say here, killed 15 laborers 
40 others were injured. The report about the reason for the collapse was this. The court found that the contractor and the site engineer were guilty of negligence as the contractor didn't follow the building code requirements and the site engineer didn't inspect the work properly. If you love people, you will give excellent work in all that you do because you know that your work has ramifications. Your efforts and whatever you do is going to affect everyone else around you. So you might think, okay, uh, what about your schoolwork? What about your work at Chick-fil-A? What about your work, um, your part-time job doing, you know, you're nannying or you're trying to, nanny. I don't know, whatever you're doing, everything you do, excellent work is an act of worship toward God and an act of love toward people. It all matters. Your schoolwork right now, you're saying, well, how does, how does my, my trigonometry show love for anybody? Let me just draw a couple lines, okay? If you're doing trig and it seems mostly useless, let me just draw a couple, a couple applications. First of all, when you exercise your brain and you learn to think logically, which is what math requires, you are loving the Lord God with your mind because you're learning to exercise your brain in ways that are beyond your current capacity. Second way, your ability to think logically translates not only to math, but even to the rest of your life because you're learning to think in linear progressive thought, which most people don't do very well these days. When you get good grades and you do excellent work, who else are you blessing? You're blessing your teacher who would have the joy of saying, I love the work that so-and-so does. They make my job easier. They make my job a joy. Who else are you blessing? Your parents who see your excellent work in trig get to say, thank you, Johnny, for giving your best work at this, or at least working hard to show that you care about our leadership. You respect us. When you become an adult and you get a job, you've learned to work hard in something that you despise. Let me tell you this. This is a secret of adulthood. You're not going to love every job you do. I speak from experience. I used to work the drive through at McDonald's, and my job, because I would close, is I got to clean the fry machine. The fry machine, you don't want to know, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> the fry machine, you put the fries at the top, it just puts, the fr- it, puts it in the basket that you put in the, in, the, in the oil pit thing. Those fries are caked, I mean like caked with fat fat and all these other chemicals. It smells like a chemistry experiment when you first smell them when they're raw. But as they go through that machine, it just gets caked with buildup of fat, grease, and what, what other nastiness that you see in that thing. So my job was to take, take the machine apart and clean all the fat off. So I had to put these gloves on. And, and if you ever deal with fat, that grease gets on your face and on your clothes, and it smells, the smell gets stuck on you for like three days. I'm cleaning the fat off. But I knew that if I didn't do a good job, people could get sick. And I learned to do a good job on things that I didn't like because I was learning at that point in time to push through my unwillingness to work in order to love others well. Now, I could talk, oh, that's so much, there's more here than what meets the eye. But love, love, excellent work is an act of worship toward God and an act of love toward others. Young person, do not despise the work that God has given you. Work as unto the Lord because it is an act of love. God ties that together. Okay, Mandalorian. This is the way, right? I love that. I love that. This is the way. In fact, I love Mando because it gave me them feels at the end. I'm hoping for another season. Um, but anyway, this is the way. Their moral code, the creed that they live by. For Christians, striving to please God more and more, this is the way for us. Like We don't have a cute catchphrase and slogan because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We follow him. He gave us the marching orders. And because of the gospel transforming us, changing us, and giving love to us for God, this is the way. We strive to please God more and more. May you learn to do that well tonight as you go through your small groups. Let me pray for you and get you out of here. 